a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. You're listening to Star Wars Beyond the Films, the official expanded universe podcast of StarWarsReport.com. There is a great disturbance in the Force. That's right, Whistler. Welcome to episode 75 of Star Wars Beyond the Films, your Star Wars discussion podcast, your ticket to the EU. Our episodes broadcast on the Star Wars Report website, www.StarWarsReport.com. Episodes can also be found on iTunes and right on our Facebook page at SW Beyond Films. But enough about how you got here. Let's get this show started. I'm one of your hosts, the defender of the EU, the champion of the multiverse, Mark Herleman. And with me, like the moments that make you fist pump in any Star Wars project, the EU guru himself, the Count of Continuity, Mr. Nathan P. Butler. Hello, everyone. T-minus two weeks till wedding day today, as we record. Ooh, you getting nervous? Nope. Nope, just glad that I finally have the music done. If you were following on Facebook, though, and we were talking about this a little before the show, I have proven beyond a shadow of a doubt in the last 24 hours that I am not a handyman. At all. (laughs) Uh... We have an issue, apparently, where somebody in the apartment complex, it would appear, unless there is some place where the gasoline of the car is leaking into a place where you can't find it when checking normally for leaks, because her her brother does that kind of thing for a living, and he has checked all, you know, under the car and everything, um, where she would go outside to the car, and she would start with half a tank when she shut it off the night before, show up in the morning, and it's on the low fuel warning on E. It looks like somebody has been stealing gasoline from the cars that have, um, like, regularly open gas tanks, right? Where you just pull the little door open, turn the thing. There's no button on the inside to open up the latch or anything like that. So they've been sucking gas out of the Mustang, it seems. So I think, you know what? The easiest way to deal with this is I'm going to just go to AutoZone, buy one of those locking gas cap covers, and just stick it on, and all is well. Because we had tried to check and see if somebody was actually doing it by putting a little piece of tape over the edge of the little door. And sure enough, the next day, the tape was still there, but it was torn and it was not placed the same way I had placed it at the, in the first place. So somebody's been getting into it. So we lo- I go and get one of the locking gas cap covers, bring it back, we're about to put it on when she finally gets home, and crap, I can't do it. Because why? Because on the Mustang, there's this little bolt, just one little bolt, that connects to this, this uh, it's not really a wire, it's a piece of plastic that looks like a wire because it's very thin, that runs from there to the gas cap itself so that you don't wind up, you know, dropping and losing the gas cap. Very, very smart invention. So I'm like, okay, I'll just unscrew the bolt, pull that little piece off. I go and dig through my tools, my ramshackle, very small set of tools of just whatever's been thrown together and hasn't been borrowed and never returned by others. Your first mistake. Yeah, exactly. You don't have real tools. Exactly. (laughs) Um, so I'm like, uh, surely I've got a pair of pliers or a wrench or a soccer wrench or something in there. Nope, those have apparently all been taken, borrowed, or whatever. They're probably sitting in the back of an ex's car at some point. Um, it's like, okay, fine. Great. I can't get it off. So we take a special trip to AutoZone, get me a set of needle-nose pliers. So I've needed something like that anyway. Um, and I figure, okay, needle-nose I can use for the other stuff I might need it for, but also I can just grip the bolt with the ends of it, turn it, I'm good to go. Uh, we get back. And take these needle nose pliers off the little plastic uh, card that they're on. And that was easy. 
And I figure, hey, I didn't have to cut through that. That's great. This should be simple. Then comes the rub. We could not get those pliers to open from the locked position they're in on the packaging for nothing all night. <laughs> they're still locked closed. We couldn't turn the little screw at the end, even to the point where we use WD-40. We use little grippy things. I took it and stuck it underneath the post of my bed and pushed all my weight down on it and tried to turn it with it pressed between that and a hard surface underneath. Nothing. No turn whatsoever. Um, I broke a Swiss Army knife trying to twist it open. Um, it literally ripped. It, the, the force of it caused the Swiss Army knife to shatter at that point. Like the, the covering of it fell off and all the little Swiss Army knife pieces went clattering across the counter. Um, so finally, we wound up having to just have her drive across town, get a socket wrench um, from a, another crappy toolkit in the back of her dad's truck, and we used that to get it off. And it seems like everything's okay today. But those needle nose pliers are now, I'm just classifying it as a weapon. Because I'm not even going to try. <laughs> I'm not going to try to open these things anymore unless somebody can figure out how to do it without uh, uh, ripping all the calluses off my hands as the case has already been. Um, I think they're possessed. And right now they're just there for the special time where if we catch the person who was stealing gasoline and catch them in the act, Georgia law allows you to protect your property with lethal force. Um, I'm thinking we aim the pointy end that's still pointy because it won't open towards his eye or something. Um, but oh my god. The, the saga of the pliers about killed me in the last 12 hours. It should not be that difficult. I should not need to buy a pair of pliers to open a pair of pliers. I think the there's something saga. wrong with that somewhere. <laughs> but yeah, proof that I am a computer geek, uh, and I am very handy in that respect, but when it comes to uh, tools, you might as well give me a Fisher-Price set. Well, it's funny because my roommate's that way. He's... You know, he can break a computer down, tell you the parts you need, the components that go into those parts. But when it comes to lifting a hammer and striking that hammer on a nail, the man cannot do it. And and I was seen as this hero because I was tightening screws and knocking bolts and stuff like that in around the house. See, I can build, like, shelves. All my bookshelves, like, I put together. I mean, I can do that. Give me the pieces and give me the parts and tell me, you know, this is how to do it. Um, and I can put that kind of thing together. But don't give me something where apparently I have to, to open up a pair of pliers brand new. It just, it it completely escaped me. It makes me wonder if there are people like that in the Star Wars universe who are maybe <laughs> Jedi, who are very in tune with the Force but not very mechanically inclined, and the, the trials and tribu tribulations of them trying to construct their first lightsaber. <laughs> How many limbs are lost? How many times does it explode? You know, do they yeah. finally get to a point where they just throw what's left of the lightsaber? And does that count as giving in to anger, or is that just part of the creative <laughs> process? <laughs> Well, there's definitely a, dis a difference between working with wood and working with metal. Uh, when you're doing any kind of mechanic work with metal, you got the rusty bolts, the bolts that don't want to lock off, or the ones that are brand new that are fused together. You're like, are you kidding me? At least with wood, you can kind of sand around some problems, glue something back together. <laughs> we went insult to injury before we move on here. The insult to injury was that after about two turns with that socket wrench, I could spin that bolt with my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't right. even need... The bolt cutters, thank you. Or whatever oh, they have, the pliers. That's, that's classic. That's horrible. So so now that we know that I'm utterly inept in some respects, uh, Mark, what are we talking about this time around? Well, here at Star Wars Beyond the Films, we always ask those tough questions questions that have bothered you for a long time or the simple ones that have perplexed you off and on you ponder about star wars and so do we this episode we ponder our top 
nay, our favorite moments in our Star Wars Expanded Universe. Consider this your spoiler warning, Beyonders and Sentients of All Ages, because here we go. That's right, and just like last time, we tried to keep this confined to 10. I mean, it's not necessarily going to wind up being an exact 10 and 10. Um, sometimes we will cross over with each other, sometimes uh, we'll have some other things to add in. But at least this time, unlike with the disappointing stuff, I don't have sort of an honorable mission, mention list of crap. So that's nice. Uh, <laughs> Small favors! Alright, so for uh, the first of my 10, in no particular order here... Um, I'll try to hit at least you know some of the ones that you might find obvious first. Um, I would say one of the top ones is Star Wars Legacy Volume 1. Uh, I love the Star Wars Legacy era. The fact that we have something that is set uh, 130 plus years after the events of A New Hope. We've yeah. got a lot of uh, new factions involved or new uh, incarnations of factions involved. We have a Sith Empire. Uh, and a Sith Order that is not the same as a Sith Order that we're used to. The One Sith, led by Darth Krayt, uh, a.k.a. Asherod Het. We have a Galactic Alliance, but at that point it's the Alliance that's the Remnant, not the Empire. We have an Empire that's essentially split, where some are allied with the Sith and others have been overthrown. They're almost like a rebellion in their sense, uh, as the ones who see themselves as the deposed rightful rulers of the galaxy. We've got a Jedi Order that has essentially been almost wiped out again, and is acting behind the scenes in many cases. We have Imperial Knights, the idea of Jedi Knights, essentially, that aren't light side or dark side per se, so much as they just serve the will of their Emperor. Uh, we have some very flawed characters. Uh, in particular, Cade Skywalker, one of my favorite Star Wars characters of all time, who is this... He's a Skywalker, but he's been so scarred by his past experiences. Uh, the Battle of Osis, life as essentially a pirate and eventually as a bounty hunter and such, that he's given up the Skywalker legacy and become a spice addict, a, a, or excuse me, a death stick addict, a drug addict, so that he can sort of dull his connection to the Force so as not to be harassed, in his mind, uh, by the Force ghost of Luke Skywalker. I mean, there is so much there, and it just kept getting deeper and more interesting as it went along, whether we're talking about uh, the Sith trying to wipe out all the Mon Calamari, or the Mon Cala, whatever we're supposed to call them now, uh, on Dax slash Mon Cala slash Mon Calamari, um, the whole issue of Nina Calixta and Morrigan Cord, and the, the family relationship between Cade Skywalker and Gunnar Yeag. I mean, there's so many different cool twists and turns in that, that it was really well done, uh, and the artwork, especially for the main stories, was great because it was by Jan Dersima, one of my favorite Star Wars artists out there. Although, I will say that as cool as the Legacy comic era was, and as much as I really enjoyed that saga, you know, the 50 issues plus war, I'm not getting the same vibe at all so far from Legacy Volume 2. Uh, the husband and wife team Agreed. that is doing Legacy Volume 2 uh, it, it is not nailing it for me. So far, the story has not gotten my attention much, has not got my interest much. We're on issue number three at this point. The artwork just is not doing it for me. Uh, Anya, apparently we're supposed to pronounce it solo. So far, you know, I mean, she's an interesting character, I guess, but she's got no depth whatsoever mm -hmm. at this point. Um, and the whole thing so far is based around this idea of, hey, there was an Imperial Knight who was attacked by a Sith, and now the Sith has taken the Imperial Knight's place, and 
you know, he's able to throw around the Imperial Knight's weight, which is all well and good until around issue number three, where people start seeing the face of the real one and going, hey, that's not the same guy that was wearing the armor that I saw. And, so, and we I know mean, in the upcoming issues, he's going to start taking out one Sith one at a time. So I, he is the only thing that I'm interested in so far of this new comic. Yeah, this this unnamed Sith that has taken Yaltaval's place is, is just about it. I mean, otherwise, so far this new series is absolutely falling flat for me. Uh, when I can say that I was just about as excited for the newest issue of Fire Carrier as I was for the newest issue of Legacy Volume 2, there's a problem, because we all know how much I dislike and just am bored by Dark Times. I'm hoping Legacy Volume 2 kicks it up a notch with its second storyline and it really gets good, but I'm afraid that what we're looking at might be the equivalent of Knight Errant, in that Knight Errant, while being interesting but kind of slow to get going by it in its own right, uh, was always in the shadow of Knights of the Old Republic for John Jackson Miller, and here we have this legacy series that will essentially be living in the shadow of the previous legacy series until it finally kicks it up a notch and becomes significantly more interesting. Well, it feels like it's not part of it in the aspect of, okay, the last series, the only major arc that was not explored was the Mandalorian arc with what was going on with uh, Hondo Carr. And he went off to become the new Mandalorian, uh, Mandalore, to find the old one and kill him. Uh, great little story there. But that hasn't been touched, and it doesn't look like it's going to be. And then there's the aspect of uh, Shia Fenn had mentioned her relatives in Hapes, which I had assumed this would be Anya Solo and the Hapes Consortium, and that she would be the Queen Mother or whatever. But apparently she has nothing to do with that, and they haven't even begun to start explaining those connections. And until they get to there, I really don't care about this character. She's not at all what I was, I was expecting. Well, you know, speaking of the whole explaining those connections, um, they've said again in the letters page for the newest issue that because they don't want to tie the hands of future writers, they're not going to pin down whether she is the uh, great-grandchild, great-great-grandchild, great-great-great-grandchild, and, and the line that eventually leads us to her. I mean, it's kind of like the whole situation with Cade, where we know that it's, you know, it's uh, Anakin, Luke, Ben, and then eventually it's Cole and Nat, and then Cade. But we don't know exactly how many steps there are in between. They're doing the well, same thing Well, that's a remake, again. though. Well, they, they gave us it originally. They told us how many great greats. She was two great greats originally. But then they and changed then, it. And then they changed it. And, <laughs> and now they're like, saying they're just not going to tell us. And, and I mean, I can kind of see where they're going with, but at the same time, I can't. Because, okay, what have we been doing in the EU? We've been pushing Luke Han and Leia's ages. Oh, 70s, the new 40. 80s, the new 42. I mean, okay, so they're getting super old. So you're expecting me to believe that we're going to have, Luke's going to have Ben have two? Different children, or, or I mean, Ben's going to have a child and then another grandchild, and then Cole, uh, Cole's going to come with his brother, uh, Bantha. I, I, I finally, I have such a hard time seeing that unless they get killed at a very young age. And it's like, there, there's very little wiggle room in that aspect with how long these people are living to slip a whole extra generation in there, unless you're going to off some of them at a young age. Ben's getting old, so it's not going to be Ben. I don't know. That, that I have issue with. Um, sticking with Legacy. I have a few on Legacy as well. Mine, I kind of tried to lump them in the story arcs. Uh, I took the moments in these story arcs that I love the most. Because there's just so much really good stories out there. Or, for me, elements in stories that I love. Uh, so with Legacy, the things that I really enjoyed the most uh, was the tying into Kenobi. 
uh, when they went back to Tatooine and they explained how, you know, Kenobi was there and his run in with, with, uh, Asherard Het, how Het ended up becoming Lord Krayat, how he ended up, uh, running into the Vong and Verger ended up taking and tweaking with his mind too. I, I like that in the aspect of it. I really hate how they did that with Verger and they, they retconned her and made her Sith and that she was tweaking with Jason back into the new Jedi Order. This works to solidify that more, and I like that aspect that at least they're going to give us something because I never, I never liked that, that changing of what Vajer was doing to Jason in, in the New Jedi Order. It just didn't sit right with what I come to expect from that book series and the way it was portrayed. Uh, the other one was uh, Luke and Mara's Force Ghosts. I liked that it wasn't just Luke that Cade was trying to escape. Mara, too, would, would pester him. That was cool. It kind of give you the feeling that like the, the Solo Skywalker family would almost uh, come in and be like, dude, what are you doing? I mean, we can't go and see Anya because she's not going to notice us. Uh, and then there's also, you know, as you mentioned, the Imperial Knights. Uh, I love the fact that with the Imperial Knights, their uniform is all uniform and their lightsabers are all silver, except for the royal family who has their colors. But it's the whole aspect of they serve the force as personified by the will of the Emperor. And as the comic went, there was one of the Jedi, and I can't remember his name right now. I think it was like Hask or something like that. And he had an, an issue with, with how do we do that? You know, if the Emperor is starting to go to the dark side, do we not have a responsibility to the Empire to stand up to him? Uh, and, and that was a really cool little story arc in that when they were doing that. I believe that was when all the stuff on uh, Mon Cal and Dak was going down. Uh, and, and the other one was uh, we see a moment where Darth Krayat is uh, trying to get into one of the Sith holocrons, and he's visited by the Force ghosts of Darth Bane, uh, Anita, and a couple of other old Sith, and they're all just ripping on him. I love that to no end. And they kind of give him a, a vision of what he would look like if the Vong armor continued to grow and, and consume him. And the way that they tied him in to it, because, you know, he's a Jedi that fought in the Clone Wars. He fought right next to Master Kukruk, which I always thought that, that we were going to have this big showdown with Kukruk taking on Het once he realized that Het was a Jedi from his order. Like, I, I so thought that was going to be the big finale, that it wasn't going to be Cade in the end, that, that Kakruk was going to step up and be like, no, he's one of my Jedi, I am taking him down. But that didn't happen. But man, I was like, oh, that'd be so cool. And I'm right there with you, though, when it comes to this new legacy, though. I mean, it's just like, I, I don't know, the whole switching, when you have Jan and John, the dream team of my Dark Horse comics, and you step in and continue a story set from where they had told. That's just some big shoes to fill. And I'm and I, I, trying to just say that, that the reason why this new series doesn't feel as good is because of that. That the shoes are just so big that it's almost impossible to fill. I don't know. That's a tough one to say. Sticking with the legacy uh, terminology, at least, or the legacy era when it comes to the way that they describe the publishing eras. Uh, my second of the greats of Star Wars, uh, publishing Star Wars storytelling out there, has got to be Legacy of the Force. I know there's a lot of complaints about the way they handled Mara's death, the way they handled Jason turning to the dark side, but this is still my favorite of the long Star Wars novel series. It beats the living crap out of uh, Fate of the Jedi and out of the New Jedi Order for me, because it's a personal story. And we get to see Jason doing what he thinks is right, and Jason's descent into darkness. Ben, sort of for a while, they're being pulled along with him. Um, so many major events take place, and it all feels 
relatively realistic. You know, it's it's another civil war. It's not this invasion from mm-hmm. outside the galaxy. It's not this unknown dark side force being that's been around forever, it seems, and is only now acting. It's it, it's a member of the Skywalker family justifying himself into becoming a Sith, very much like Anakin did. Uh, I love this series. It's probably one of the few series that as I get to it with uh, from the Star Wars library, I'll probably start rereading it bit by bit by bit because it is such a good series. So uh, for me, this legacy era, for the most part, has been pretty strong, but it tends like it's been um, one strong tale and then a weak one following it, just like we've got Legacy Volume 1 followed by the weaker Legacy Volume 2 so far. We've got Legacy of the Force followed by the significantly weaker Fate of the Jedi. But Legacy of the Force uh, nails it for me, even if the ending doesn't necessarily tie up all the loose ends and isn't quite as epic uh, as I think a lot of us were expecting with Troy Denning's uh, Invincible. Well, see, and I, I blame that. I think my issues with this series all come down to conflicts between Denning and Travis. Uh, it seemed like they did not want to work with Travis. And I have issue with Denning as a closer. I, 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 I love Denning. Let me point that out. My favorite book, I have two of them. They are equal. It is I, Jedi, and Star by Star. Denning Star by Star proves that that man can write a middle book better than anyone I know. He should have been in Karen Travis's slot writing the middle books. They should have put Travis or Alston at the end of those series, and I think you would have had a much better series. I think, you know, the story in Legacy of the Force works. My issues I have with what happened with Jason's character is before that. Because in Dark Nest, they took him from being a rogue Jedi, somebody that was that was evolving beyond the Jedi in their dogmatic ways, and then said, no, 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 he's not evolving into anything. He's de-evolving into a Sith. And I didn't like that because they had such a great setup. And this was working. They were still making it where he was sacrificing himself. He was going to become the big bad to prevent an even bigger bad from coming. Good, I'm right there with you. All right, Jason, I love this. And then comes along Fate of the Jedi, and then they screwed it all to hell by saying... Oh, well, Jason, by preventing a bad evil, unleashed an even bigger evil. And it's like, really, with the amount of flow walking that young Solo was doing, you don't think he's going to notice that happening? It was, it was, I, I really don't like those type of retcons that happen along the way. I know when it comes to Dark Nest, uh, the flow walking was kind of retconned in the middle of it. Denning likes to say that, that his interpretation of flow walking was ran with differently, but my issue with the flow walking happened in darkness. He changed how he used it in darkness. It's like, well, no wonder they were confused, Denning. You got us all confused when you changed the flip and the flop. Can she kiss Anakin? Did it change history or didn't? You know, those little things, I think, are the detractors of the legacy of the Force series, but you're 100% right when it comes to his fall. Jason's character became a character that it's one that you almost have to follow him from birth to death to get the most out of invincible uh i had my wife read two books (laughs) those books being sacrifice and invincible i screwed up guys beyonders i screwed up bad okay my wife likes the dark side my wife loves mara jade because she was a dark side character first my wife likes jason solo because he started flirting with the dark side so of course i give her the one book where jason kills mara and then i give her the book where jaina kills jason so of course by the time she finishes invincible and i'm i'm not kidding here she had nightmares for three months about jaina killing jason so she won't read another star wars book i blew that one out of the water but for me in the legacy of the force the book invincible was was where i just 
the battle between Jason and Jaina, this is something that had been growing since the New Jedi Order. The Vong were trying to force them into a battle. And, you know, we were seeing this whole buildup uh, throughout their lives when the Second Imperium would make them fight each other and stuff like that. So you kind of had this this sense of, of destiny and fate coming. But there were also some little moments, like the fact that, that you know, Travis made Jaina go to uh, Boba Fett and learn how to do the Shatterpoint technique and, and do all this Mandalorian training. And then, of course, we get into Denning's book and Denning doesn't use any of it. It's like, why? Why? What is your issue, Denning? Drop the personal BS between you and Travis and use her sh- uh, <laughs> But uh, the moment, though, that really got to me, I just got done watching, I believe it was the second or maybe third Saw movie, and there was a scene where one of the characters was the next heroin addict, and she falls into this pit of needles to find a key, and comes up, she's got all these needles sticking in her arm and in her face, and there is a moment where Jaina and Jason are fighting in this medical facility, and Jason falls into a, a bunch of syringes like that, and comes up, and that scene from that movie was just playing through my mind, and the, just the intensity of it all. And, and that was what I really enjoyed about it was, was the way that that intensity built between the two of them. Uh, you know, when, when, uh, Jay, when they first see each other, you know, Jason opens the door and it's like, he was like yelling at someone. He's like, have my stealth X prepped for immediate. He let the tra- the sentence trail off as the door opened on its own, revealing a dark uniformed woman, an athletic build and a brown furious eyes. Jaina, a lightsaber snap hissed to life and suddenly Cadus felt as if he were going to vomit fire. And that's because Jaina just unleashed her lightsaber right into his chest. I mean, didn't even, didn't give him a second to anything. He's barely recognized she's there and she's already cutting him open. I mean, I, I just, the way that that works, you know, I'm just loving it. And he, he's trying to do the right thing in the aspect of saving his wife, well, Tanelka and his daughter, Alana. And he's like, you need to get out of my way. I'm trying to save Tanelka and Alana. Sure you are, Jaina scoffed. And she's like, just like you saved Isildur. Isildur would have made the same choice. In fact, he did. Cadus clipped the lightsaber to his belt, a trusting gesture that might have had some meaning had he not been a lying Sith murderer. Jaina, we don't have time for this, so die already. I just, I mean, Jaina is just so cold and calculating. And, I mean, everything about the way she did it, I was just like, Oh my God, is this really happening? I was, I was expecting like Luke to come in or something and save her. He's just like, is this really going to happen? And it doesn't. I mean, when, when it comes down to the moment, you know, I just, I love the way it, it happens. I mean, Jaina felt something in the force too, something that made her pull stop and her chest sink and her blood freeze in her veins. Her brother was reaching out to Tanelka, screaming at her through the force, warning her that there was danger, urging her to take Alana and, and then the blade reached Cadus's heart and he dropped at her feet. And Jaina felt nothing at all. So in Jason's last act, he's doing a selfless thing. He is warning Tanelka and Alana that the Imperial, granted this isn't Fell exactly, but the, the Grand Moffs have created a biological weapon that is going to target them. And he is sending in the force because Jaina's gotten his way. He is literally trying to tell her to get the heck out of there, get Alana out of there. And Jaina's in his way. She won't let him pass. And so the last thing he does is he reaches out in the force to send a warning, giving up on his own life. I mean, there were still those moments of sacrifices about the character that was the character I love. One of the things that drove me so nuts was right after the New Jedi Order ended and darkness started, everyone started calling Jason Jino. Jason in name only. And God, that just ticked me off. It's like, come on. It's still Jason. It, there, was, there was a lot of people that were upset with the aspect of Jason would kind of like learn a lesson and then a book or two later have to relearn the lesson. And, and that really irked a lot of people. But 
from where I come from in life, I have never learned any lesson the first time right away. I, it's always a trial and error, and I always end up forgetting one aspect of it and I have to do this circular logic that I'm always talking about. Where, oh, yeah, that's right. And back again to the top of the circle. Here we go. And that progression of Jason seemed natural for me. I, I, Jason's one of my favorite characters, and granted, his life and the death of the character was not at all how I anticipated it going. And that was disappointing, but I also enjoyed what they did with the character and where they went with him in the end, even though it wasn't what I was expecting. I realized that a lot of that was my own expectations, and you know th that's a danger for everybody in fandom. If you get your own expectations up too high, you're not going to like what you see because it's not what you were expecting. So I always try to go into it not expecting. So for me, it's a back and forth. I, I mean, there are moments in there I love to death. Uh, you know, the betrayal of Mara when, when Jason projects Ben's face and then stabs her in the leg. It was such a cheap move, but it was, you know, it, it just proved how sithly he was becoming. Uh, you know, there were things like, I think that they could have done better when it came to the retcon of Verger being a Sith, us finding out from Lamaya only. Uh, if they'd have found a way to kind of build that up more or give us some more facts, uh, some videos or something or, Maybe even Verger on a holocron saying, yes, <laughs> I have lured Solo to the dark side or something crazy like that. I don't know. Uh, I mean, granted, in, in the Invasion or uh, Legacy series, we do see her do the same thing to Krayt. So it does make it stand a little more in the aspect of, okay, yeah, she was actually dark. But there's some things about there that just don't quite sit right. You want to toss us uh, another one? Okay. My uh, my next one is actually the New Jedi Order. Uh, you know, I, I've always mentioned that's my favorite. There are a lot of aspects of this that I love. Uh, I, the first thing, of course, was Chewie dying. I was so excited when <laughs> Chewie died. What? Why are you excited that Chewie died? I wasn't excited that he died. I was excited for what it represented. It represented a moment for me at that time that everyone was at stake. You know, I don't, I don't remember when Lucas finally gave us that the big three are, are untouchable again, but when Chewie died, it was like, whoa, all bets are off. Uh, and, and, and that set the tone for a very dark series. I mean, my favorite books in that series are the Dark Tide duology one and two, the Edge of Victory one and two, Star by Star, Dark Journey, Rebel Dream, Rebel Stand, Traitor, and Destiny's Way. All my favorite books in that series. Uh, you know, most of the character deaths, the big ones, you know, Chewie, Anakin, uh, Ganna Rysode, all favorite scenes for me. I just, I, I love them to death. I mean, you know, let's, let's take, uh, Traitor here for a second, you know, and we get this great moment where, where Ganner is down in the well of the world bearing, the old Senate, uh, and, and the, the Vong creature that's controlling all the Coruscants there. And Jason has kind of made friends with it and is trying to talk it into betraying the Vong, but he needs time. Nominor's there with a legion of Vong warriors. And so Ganner, at this point, he's kind of having like a pity party at the, at the beginning of the book. Like, you know, he's always been like this big poser, the play actor. And at this point, he has the epiphany that it's okay to play act. It's okay to be the actor. It's okay to be the poser. His whole life has been building to this moment. And so he goes and tells Jason to go inside and he gets ready to go. And Warriors fanned out, officers glancing back to their commander who looked to Nominor. This is your event, Executor. What would you have us do? You! You there! Nominor called nervously and basic. What are you doing there? The answer was a deep, mocking, cheerful growl. Isn't it obvious? I'm standing in your way. Ganner Rysode. Nominor began to relax. This was Ganner Rysode, 
the weakling who could not even mount the causeway. Ganner Rysode, who got no respect from the other Jedi. Ganner, the poser, the play actor, the joke. Nominor snorted. He should just order the fool cut down. But Ganner didn't sound weak now. Or foolish. And what had happened to the missing Rickon squad? And did Nominor really want to be responsible for starting a brawl in the Well of the World Brain? He bit his lips so hard he tasted blood. Stand aside! There are thousands of warriors out here. You cannot hope to stop us. I don't have to stop you. All I have to do is slow you down. A sharp, buzzing crackle made Nominor jump. From the shadow's hand sprang a meter-long bar of visibly sizzling anethyst. He's got Anakin Solo's lightsaber, if you did not know. You want me to move? The shadow beckoned with the blade of light. Come on and move me. The smoke thinned and cleared, and the human within the archway didn't look at all like the Ganner Nominor remembered. This Ganner wore only brown leggings and tattered leather boots. This Ganner was tall, broad-shouldered, and the light from his weapon gleamed on the sculpted muscle of his bare chest. The blade in his hand was steady as the roots of a mountain, but it was not this that made Nominor hesitate, made him run his thin yellow tongue nervously between his filed sharp teeth. It was the light in Ganner's eyes. He looked happy. There are thousands of warriors out here, Nominor repeated, waving a futile fist. You are only one man. I am only one Jedi. You are insane! The man's answering laugh was deep and long and full of bright joy and freedom. <laughs> no, I am Ganner. He sprang his shining blade in a dazzling, complex flourish that illustrated the arch around him, making it shine like a rainbow frame for the pure, animal grace of his body. This threshold, he announced through a happy grin, is mine. I claim it for my own. Bring on your thousands, one at a time or all in a rush. I don't give a damn. His flourish ended with the blade slanted before his chest and his teeth flared in the gloom. None shall pass. That is hands down one of my favorite scenes in all of the EU. You know, and the next one, it begins with Ganner Rysode builds a rampart of the dead. I mean, it's just, the man is just insatiable with the lust of killing. And I just love it. You know, I, I've always wanted a, a Jedi character that was like the Punisher. And in that moment, Ganner Rysode steps up to the plate. I gotta say, I was a fan of the New Jedi Order at the time. And for some reason, over the years, it's sort of lost its luster for me. Um... It's kind of one of these series that felt like it could have been done in less books. We did not need 19, and holy crap, it was going to be even more than that at one point, novels to tell one story. It was an era in which if you didn't like dark Star Wars storytelling, then between that and the Clone Wars stuff, you were pretty much just screwed. Um, I don't know. It has great moments to it. Uh, it is one of these things where the Vong, at least to start with, present a unique threat. Um, they're from outside the galaxy, as far as we know, and uh, they can't be sensed in the Force. As time went on, though, they became more and more of a mundane type of villain than the mystery they were at the beginning. I think that took away some of their uh, their their excitement factor as we got towards the end of the series. Uh, I can tell you and re specifically remember a lot of stuff from the early New Jedi Order stuff, but honestly, by the time we got to the end... It felt like we were just kind of going through the motions to get done with the story, finally. Uh, way, way 
way overdone. Um, I do like the fact that it did start to make us feel as though not everyone is safe anymore. The death of Chewbacca, the death of Anakin Solo, huge, huge moments for the EU. Uh, although, you know, you got to sit back and say, really, Luke, you, you sent a bunch of, what, little teenagers into what amounts to essentially a suicide mission? Good job. Um, it just kind of felt like it was, like I said, it was overdone. If that had been more of a, a ten book series, perhaps a nine book series, um, it would have been, I think, a little bit more compressed and it would have had a brisker pace. Because there are times you get to certain books in the New Jedi Order and you're like, okay, can we move on? Okay, there's another big battle coming. It's not going to be a war-winning battle. It may not even turn the tide, but since this is a separate book, there's got to be a separate big battle. Oh, goody. Um, I like the tone change it brought. I like the fact that it brought that sense that not everyone was safe. And I like the fact that it was epic in scope. But looking back on it, it it's just it's too big. At this point, and I think part of that feeling is now where we've got the novel series that for a long time the the fear was, you know, there just aren't any comics to go with it. I mean, my story equals and opposites in 2004, aside from seeing briefly, I think it was an image of a Yuzhan Vong warrior uh, in shadow or something in the uh, Chewbacca comic and in dealing with seeing a. Naminor back in Crimson Empire 2, we really hadn't seen the Vong in action in a Star Wars comic. And that was 04 uh, when I put that story together that wound up going out there through Tales. Um, so it was pretty much a novel-only story except for a few little RPG supplements, a few short stories here and there, but not much in the way of comics. And then we got Invasion. And Invasion became amazingly disappointing. It took a while to get going, but once it did get going, it was like, wow, there's all these cool new elements which seem odd that nobody would have mentioned during the New Jedi Order stuff, but of course they didn't know it existed because it didn't exist at that point. It hadn't been written, but hey, this is kind of cool. And then they ended with that so-called satisfactory ending that leaves a lot of questions unanswered, and who knows if we'll ever get answers. Between that yeah. way that it ended and the art style that never really caught on for me, I mean, it sort of makes sense for the Vong with the whole Jagged Edges stuff, but just really is not an art style that I particularly like. Um, I think in that way, the Invasion comic series has taken away from the positivity that I had about the New Jedi Order as a whole. Uh, when one of the most mm -hmm. emotionally impactful moments of the entire Yuzhan Vong War happens in Mercy Kill in a flashback, not in the 19 books of New Jedi Order, there's something missing. There's some spark that it just didn't have for me, um, or at least doesn't anymore looking back on it see and another thing and it always irked me at the time was that the new jedi order was an era and a series at the same time which that that's it's a lie okay it, it was a series that they then called an era i mean when, when you think about the new jedi order it's a, it's a bunch of standalones duologies and trilogies but we treat it like it's one series because it was executed as one series. Now think of Legacy. Legacy, if you count that as an era, it almost has the same amount of books, but no one complains about that. But my issue, I think, with, with, with even the New Jedi Order, but at least up until Destiny's Way, they had a plan up to at least that point. And then they get to the other part and it's like, um, well, don't know about this. I don't know where we're going to go. Um, I don't know. So that was always an issue for me. I, when you get to Jason, or I mean, when Anakin's death, God, that was just such a powerful moment, though. 
uh, you know, Anakin, he screams. Jane is there screaming, uh, you know, and Anakin's like, go, I can't hold. And moments like that where he puts Jason in charge and the way that that goes literally from that book right into a dark journey and you witness Jaina's fall to the dark side and you're like, what's going to happen to her? Meanwhile, Jason gets captured by the Vong. We don't see from him again until we get to Traitor, an excellent book. Um, you know, I'm with you in the aspect of uh, the New Jedi Order Invasion series because that just – there were so many things they could have done with that and they didn't. It just really bothered me in that regard. It was like, come on, people. Um, some other good things, though, was uh, the reappearance of Lord Nyax. Uh, it was uh, Eric uh, Eisen, I think was what his name was. He was uh, from one of the earlier books with the Eye of Palpatine. I believe it was Children of the Jedi. Uh, so we've seen what happened to that character and how he got built up into something later. Um, Destiny's Way, we get to see uh, Verger talk to, to Luke about what it was like to be Jedi in the past. So that was some cool stuff. Um, the thing I did like, though, about Invasion was seeing the illustrations of the ships, the Vong, things like that. Stuff that you could only envision with your mind now actually coming to life in picture form. That was That was really cool. I will agree that I do like the fact that we had Anakin Solo's death wind up lead to Dark Journey where it looked like Jaina was going dark for a little bit and uh, the torture and such in Traitor of Jason that winds up turning him into the character that he becomes later on. So I, I will give you that. That was a very cool moment that tied those books together and gave us kind of one of the more interesting years of the story. But that in and of itself is also, to me, weakened in retrospect by the fact that we find out that it's not that Anakin Solo was meant to die there. They planned on it being Jason and to build yeah. up Anakin's destiny, but Lucas, in his infinite wisdom, decided that, well, see, we've got these stories out there now with the prequels with Anakin Skywalker, and we don't want to confuse people with Anakin Solo by having two characters out there with the first name, so sorry, you got to kill Anakin Solo instead of Jason Solo. That's just the way it is, guys. That, A, doesn't even remotely give any level of respect to the intelligence of the readers and the fans, uh, and two makes it feel as though that scene, as powerful as it was, wasn't meant to turn out that way. It'd be as if we were supposed to find out at the end of The Empire Strikes Back that Vader wasn't Luke's father, he was Luke's grandfather or uncle, uh, and it turns out that Obi-Wan was actually his father, only for them, which is one of the things they said in the uh, during the filming, um, only for them to then later have to change it, because what well, we thought there wasn't enough of a generational gap. If you knew that, you would always look back at that scene a little bit differently. Then we look at it now. It's that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, one last thing in the New Jedi Order that was one of my favorite scenes is in Dark Tide, the whole uh, internal battle between Koran Horn and Shido Shai. Uh, the way that that built up, the the whole, you know, what Shai did to Elegus, uh, the way that he went after Koran, the way he tempted Koran, and the way Koran reacted by touching the dark side, and then Koran's reaction to there, which was basically uh, Stackpole saying, I want to save my character, so I'm going to make him jump out of the war for a while. <laughs> I get where he came from, uh, but, you know, and, and I was saying this just on EUcast, there's still a lot of good stories that can be told in this era. I mean, you know, we don't know what Koran was doing once he disappeared. We do know later on that there were two rogue squadrons. Koran was running one, and that Gavin Darklighter was running another. I mean, there are a lot of stuff that you could still fit into this era and have some really good stories. I mean, like like you mentioned, Mercy Kill, that moment there, gosh, that brought me to tears, and I love the fact that they placed it back in the New Jedi Order for that moment. That Because, again... Of any era that the most is at stake, it is that era. I mean, these guys took Coruscant, moved it out of orbit, crushed one of the planets, turned it into a rainbow bridge. I mean, these guys were changing the face of the galaxy. And that was, and still will be, one of the reasons why I love it so much. 
Okay, moving on to another topic. Uh, in my case, another one of the uh, top moments, or at least one that right now has a lot of potential and has been interesting, and I think it's one of the better things they've done with Star Wars in a while, is Dawn of the Jedi. Now, we're going to be covering Dawn of the Jedi Into the Void in our next episode, at which point I'll get into the bizarre chronological issues that have popped up recently with uh, the Dawn of the Jedi stuff and how it fits in with uh, with other previously existing chronological notations that we've been given. But, Dawn of the Jedi, while something that is still growing at this point, I think it's really going to be the one that captures a lot of people's attention once the next storyline, Force War, is out, is a very cool way of seeing the origins of the Jedi Order, uh, the backstory of all these events that we've been ha uh, having hinted towards us for quite a while, uh, the Force War and all that kind of stuff, Tython and everything, possibly Mortis with the way the Thoyor might be tied into that and everything. Um, it's just a great opportunity to go back and see a, a different version of the galaxy far, far away than what we know. Um, the characters so far don't have a lot of depth yet because they're, sh they're shuffling around a lot of different characters. I like the Zesh character and some of the depth he's being given in terms of what he knows and what he simply doesn't know about, like the light side, because of the way he was raised, the way he developed as a slave of the Rakatans. Um, the fact that we are seeing characters like Rajavari show up, who had so much backstory given in some of the early levels uh, or early missions of one of the class storylines in the Old Republic. And the fact that we have this whole concept now of, you know, a... a Sort of what Yoda says in the prequels about how visions and and prophecies can certainly be misread, misunderstood. And here we have Dagon Loke and Hawk Rio both having experienced a vision, apparently, in which an army of dark side force users, or at least an army of dark siders using force sabers, was marching on Tython, and it took a Jedi army standing up against them to bring them down. And this discrepancy of, well, Dagon Loke thinks that he's the one leading that Jedi army and that he is destined to be their leader whether they approve of his actions now or not, whereas Hawk believes that it wasn't Dagon, it was Zesh leading. But then there's the question of why would Zesh lead if he is only now being allowed to do any Jedi training, having only just appeared on the planet with the fall of uh, one of the Praetor ships. So you've got all these different angles on it, and it's making for an interesting new environment in which stories take place. And as we'll see when we talk about Into the Void, it's Jedi, but it's not. The balance issue, the willingness to use the dark side as long as you're also using the light side as well. The fact that it's not about good or evil. It's this idea that there are these two sides and you can stray one way or the other, but the goal is balance, at least within your life and within all things, if not in any given moment. Uh, even something as subtle as what they say in Into the Void, where they don't say, the Force will be with you, or may the Force be with you. They say, the Force go with you or may the force go with you, um, which granted is a subtle difference, but it leans more toward the kind of things like we hear with, you know, God be with you and so forth. It sort of, it, it takes that same feel of a modern uh, earth religious message of hope, in a sense, uh, a religious message of hope to someone who's going on a journey or who's uh, approaching some task and gives it another Star Wars twist while also at the same time being a subtle difference. It's almost like uh, you could say that the Jedi and the Jedi, or perhaps the Jedi and the uh, the Jedi Order of, say, the prequel era, versus the Jedi of Luke's new Jedi Order, are all kind of like saying Christianity, but here's the Eastern Orthodox that uh, picks up with the Byzantines. 
Here's Roman Catholic that picks up after that first schism uh, separates them from Eastern Orthodox. Now here's Protestantism that comes from the Protestant Reformation and so forth. Here's these different versions of the same thing, but they all have their different ways of looking at it and their different uh, uh, pieces to their theology. That to me is fascinating and it's cool to see characters acting within that because you can't necessarily predict everything they're going to do. So Dawn of the Jedi for me is a is a particularly interesting era. So far uh, it's not quite uh, as as explosive as I was hoping, but I think that's going to happen with the Force War coming up. So to me, this mm-hmm. definitely is on my my top list. Yeah, I, I'm I'm excited about that series. It didn't make my list for the, the reasons you explained. It's still new. Um, I'm looking forward to where it's going. But there's so many other good stories out there that I want to make sure to capture ones that you know I know I love where they've gone. Uh, and, and keeping in the older eras here uh, was Red Harvest. Uh, it was the second zombie-like book. It followed Dark Troopers. It was kind of like a prequel origin of, to a very small degree. Uh, it had moments where we had lines from Taken in there. I loved that. I thought that was great. You know, a particular skill set. I'm good at what I do. I just, I loved the way uh, that the character, the brother, was coming after his sister, the way that the uh, Sith Academy was off on its own. Uh, you know, it, it was a story that could be set in almost any era. Um, and I really, I just, I liked the characters of the Sith Academy. I really enjoyed where that was going. The, the librarian, the Nettie librarian, and how he was able to burrow through the ground and all that stuff, and, and what Scabarus was doing and things like that. Uh, it just was a really fun book. And I, I think, unlike Death Troopers, where they brought Han and Chewie in to give you kind of that safe out. This one, you had no idea who was going to live, who was going to escape. Uh, the Whippet in it was a really fun character. There were a lot of fun moments. Um, and, and that'll go into the next one I was saying, because one of those moments is actually captured an image in the essential reader's companion. Uh, they, they had the moment with the uh, Tauntauns with their bellies all tore out and one of the zombies inside of it. Great imagery. Uh, and that book is, you know, one of my favorite books and an out of universe perspective. Uh, it, it's like your essential chronology, only even better. I mean, instead of giving you more chronological stuff, it gives you the books themselves and focuses on that. It, it's great, great information. A lot of really cool stuff going on there. Absolutely love that. I couldn't say enough about it. It has become a tool that I use almost on a daily basis. Also, I did enjoy uh, Red Harvest myself. I didn't put it on the top list because it was one of these stories that uh, it didn't really have much impact on anything. And it wasn't any characters that we had any other uh, information about. We never saw any of them before. We will never see any of them again. So yeah. it's kind of one of these um, – I mean, it's like I guess the equivalent is I'm reading – and I, I love zombie stories. Um, I got into reading recently uh, – again, I'd read it before uh, – John Mayberry's book Patient Zero which is the first in the in the so-called Joe Ledger series, where you've got a character who is brought into the Department of Military Science as basically sort of a uh, an off-the-books, black ops type of group that fights the weird stuff, almost the X-Files type of stuff, but they're more like a military unit in a lot of ways, an investigative and military unit. And the first book is, what if an Al-Qaeda-type terrorist group got their hands on, and it's more complicated than this, but their hands on essentially a disease, a bioweapon, that creates zombies. And these are the groups that have to stop. And then it picks up from there, and the second book deals with, um, oh gosh, what was the second one? Second one was uh, somebody trying to essentially recreate the zombie ideal, or the zombie idea, excuse me. Uh, the second book was basically trying to recreate the Nazi ideal and finish Joseph Mengele's work of creating a disease that would kill anyone who wasn't white. Um, there's another book that basically brings vampires into play, the 
uh, most recent book wound up bringing into play the idea of UFOs and that sort of thing. Um, but that series is something that becomes more interesting as you go along because you get very invested in the Joe Ledger character, Rudy Sanchez, uh, his buddy who's the psychiatrist. Uh, that stuff, very cool, but also part of a series where what makes you care sometimes about the characters in one book is the fact that you've been with them for so long. On the flip side, I'm reading a book now, I believe it's called Dead of Night, that is also by the same writer, and it's also a zombie book. But that is just a one-shot book. It's in a small town in Pennsylvania where it looks like they experimented on a death row inmate uh, to see what they could do with him. And the idea was that when he died, they were going to see what happened and see if he comes back as a zombie and just destroy the body eventually. Only an unexpected family member winds up coming and claiming the body, so it's not there when it awakens. And when it awakens, it starts spreading this zombie plague, so to speak, like a parasite type thing, I guess it is in this case, um, throughout that era, or throughout that area. So we're dealing with, in that case, characters that you only get to know in one book. And as good as the book is, I'm never really going to feel the type of connection to that book as I do to the stuff with the Joe Ledger series. Because they're not characters that I'm ever going to see again, and they're not characters that I ever saw before. They're fun for the moment. But just like Red Harvest, it doesn't leave quite as much of an impact on me as the other one. So I think that's my thing. Red Harvest was good, but it just wouldn't make my top list because it's relatively, you know, disconnected, I suppose. Yeah, and that was appealing for me. I like the fact that it it could fit anywhere and it had no ties. I mean, very rarely do I like books like that. And in this case, I was like, hey, this is a lot of fun. Uh, other books, though, that I liked in, in similar regard would be... Uh, the Revenge of the Sith by Stover. You know, we, me and you both, Nathan, we both like that a lot. Uh, I watched that one before I saw the movie. I read that book and it, it enhanced the entire, the, gosh, I can't talk. It enhanced the entire experience for me a hundred percent. I mean, when, when we get to the moment where Mace and Fisto and Aiden and Sati or Sassy Tin come in and they're ready to take down Palpatine, that scene in the movie is just so weak. But the book really expands that. There were so many beheadings and things like that going on. And, and the nature of the seduction of Anakin and the way that worked and the buildup of, of Padme's story. There was a lot more going on for Padme and what was going on with the rebellion in episode three than we ever saw in the films. Uh, and, and those were things that really it tore me up that those were cut out, especially from, from a lady fan perspective. It's like you could have had such a better story in that episode than, than just a mom giving up at the end. But Lucas cut it out. Sorry. Yeah, that was one that's on my list also, the Revenge of the Sith novelization from Stover. I actually went and hunted down the slip-cased uh, special edition of that that's signed and numbered uh, by Stover, because that is one of my favorite Star Wars novels of all time. It does a great job of, of adding to the experience of the film, and I had actually, I keep saying I've read, I listened to the audiobook of it prior to seeing the film. And by doing that, I think I greatly enhanced my, my appreciation of the film I call it the Stover effect. I mean, it really made it so that that is my favorite Star Wars film, but I, I know that if I had gone into it not having read the book first, I wouldn't get nearly as much out of it. And I must say, they try to address somewhat the whole Padme, she lost the will to live, bullcrap, um, from the end of the movie in the newest issue of Insider that's showing up for subscribers, the one that's got the good hunting short story in it with Jaina and Tanelka and uh, Alana in it. And they point out that it probably would have been better to have that lost the will to live line delivered by a sentient character instead of by a droid, so that at least it might have some 
sense of credence instead of saying, excuse me, how is a droid, a medical droid, going to say something like that? Um, but they argue that, no, the injuries didn't kill her. She did lose the will to live. It was meant to make it mystic. And the only way they can try to give that in that entire article some sense that maybe this wasn't a stupid way to end it is to say, well, see, when they're sitting there uh, before uh, Anakin goes to stop Mace from killing Palpatine and they're and they got that crazy music and they're like both looking out kind of toward each other and you get that music playing. They're actually forming a force bond with each other in a sense, sort of the way that Stover points out in the novel. And see, if they have this bond in a sense and Star Wars is about balance and again, Lucas's definition of balance prior to the Mortis trilogy was not equal light and dark. It was Light is natural, so light is good. Balance means everything is light side, and that dark side is a cancer within nature and must be gotten rid of. It's not one equals the other. It's not an equation here. But they say, well, since Star Wars needs balance, light and dark, they're going for the equation-type definition here. Um, we'll see when Anakin is dying, Anakin's refusal, and I love this, this concept, even if it does seem like it's a, a retconned, placating way to do it, this idea that um, because Anakin, who is connected to Padme, is fighting so hard to live when he should have died, at the same time that she is dying, in a sense, the ability to still live is being taken away from her. That she is dying when maybe she didn't need to because the Force demands balance. And of these two connected characters, if the one that was supposed to die isn't going to die, the other one should. That um, makes a surprising amount of sense if you put KOTOR 2 into perspective with the exile and Kira. Right, and the whole idea of, of the force bonds and stuff that connect people. So it's an interesting take on it. It's the part of the article called, from a certain point of view, it's on pages 34 and 35 of the newest Insider, if you check it out. It's issue number 142. Um, but yeah, Revenge of the Sith novel, definitely for me, uh, a, a huge, huge part of uh, what makes the EU great. Another one that I would say, and this kind of goes into the same thing that we've looked at jumping to different eras, uh, is Tales of the Jedi. Tales of the Jedi, in and of itself, was a huge departure from what we saw with other eras. Uh, Jedi all over the place, the idea of the rise of an early Sith Order, we now know them uh, as essentially Exar Kun's era of the Order. Um, we got to see Ulit Keldroma meet all these new characters, ones that were just hinted at in the little backstory bits at the back of single issues of Dark Empire. I'll say that really, of all the different times we've seen a heroic character fall to the dark side and seek redemption, Anakin's in the films was probably the one that was handled the the worst, the least well done. Um, Jason probably is my favorite descent into the dark side of the justification to go along with it at this point, but he doesn't really ever get redemption in his case. Uh, one of the best examples of it in the EU overall, though, is Ulic Keldroma. A man who wants to destroy the Sith, but to do it, he feels like he has to do it from the inside. He thinks he can sort of keep his soul if he goes behind enemy lines and is able to uh, defeat Exar Kun, that somehow he'll be able to come back from that. Only we find that he only does in a sense, as opposed to coming out of it uh, essentially whole. It, it takes a heavy price. Although I will say that Tales of the Jedi, very much like uh, what we said with the, the two different versions of Legacy and that sort of thing, I think it at least somewhat is is harmed by the fact that we get those Golden Age of the Sith stories. I like the Golden Age of the Sith stories, don't get me wrong. I think it's necessary and interesting background. But they never caught my attention the same way 
that the original stories in the original five-issue miniseries, Ulit Keldroma and the Beast Wars of Onderon and Saga of Nomi Sunrider, sometimes known as the Collectioner, Knights of the Old Republic in trade paperback form, and Freedom Nat Uprising and Dark Lords of the Sith and the Sith War did. Those really caught my attention, and I loved it when they came back to it with Redemption ten years later in story terms to tell what happened to Ulit in the end. But... Golden Age of the Sith and Fall of the Sith Empire never captured my attention the same way. They were much broader, and the characters didn't have as much depth in a lot of ways to them. So I think that that, while fleshing out the era, uh, I don't know, it feels like that maybe sort of weakened it if it hadn't, if it had just been left with Ulick's era as opposed to going back. But overall, Tales of the Jedi, great stuff. I only wish that the many different interesting aesthetic changes and technological changes and visual changes we got in that series, thanks to the artwork, had stuck around when we got the era of the Knights of the Old Republic games, the Knights of the Old Republic comic series, and the Old Republic. It's like there's a quantum leap in terms of the look of technology, and all of a sudden, just a few short years later, we've got basically technology that looks like the films, and that archaic look that we got with Tales of the Jedi is completely out the window. Well, see, they could have at least done that in a way where, like, Okay, the tales of that archaic stuff was all in like one sector of space and that sector of space had kind of isolated itself. So the tech in that area was a little, I don't know, more ghettofied than the rest of the galaxy. If they'd explained it in a way like that, maybe that had made a little more sense. It's a little, a little throw offish in the aspect of when you see Republic ships and stuff like that showing up in, you know, like, uh, night errant things like that. You're like, wait, that's like the entire gar. What? <laughs> Um, well, I guess that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. Remember, you can always listen to our episodes streaming online at the Star Wars Report website, www.starwarsreport.com. Episodes are also available on iTunes, which we encourage you to leave us a review while you're at it. You can also find links to our episodes on both Twitter and our Facebook page at SWBeyondFilms. Or just type in Stars Beyond the Films in the search bar. Hey, but no matter how you get there, be sure to like our page. It's one of the best ways to interact with us. We are 1,200 Beyonders strong and growing. That's because you hit like. Thank you, guys. Not only can you post comments to us about the show on our Facebook page, we love interacting with you fellow fans. So if you have any Star Wars and or EU questions, or you just want to comment about a past episode, fire off. You can email us directly at swbeyondfilms at starwarsfanworks.com. Now, lastly, before we go, we wanted to mention you again, our Audible trial. If you go to www.audibletrial.com slash Star Wars Report, you get a free trial run of Audible.com to see what they're all about. With more than 100,000 titles, you can explore the Star Wars Expanded Universe or any other genre without risk of being stuck with a book you do not like. Audible members can exchange any book within 12 months, no questions asked. So in this digital age, if you're thinking of making the switch from the page to the screen or adding a digital library to your physical one, Audible just might be right for you. So, once again, for Star Wars Beyond the Films, this has been Mark and Whistler. And Nathan. Saying, may the force be with you. And don't quote us the odds of how many people are going to go to facebook.com slash SWTimelineGold and like that page too. We're falling behind, folks. Come on. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know what's going on. What are the odds that we were going to leap ahead so fast in so little time? I'm just, I'm blown away. You Beyonders make this possible. And that, we salute you.
Um, well, I guess that about wraps up this episode of Star Wars Beyond the Films. Thank you guys once again for hanging us. Thank you guys again for hang. <laughs> Thank you again for hanging around with us as we ponder on sharing the fandom. That's a long one, dude.